This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. How are you doing? I am doing great. It's my birthday, and you know what Woo-hoo. that means? means the room tax numbers are out. I always know <laughs> that my birthday is right around the corner when I get to talk to you about room tax numbers. So It's an annual tradition it's, that let, we don't have. Let's <laughs> jump in. I'm, I'm so excited. Tell me about room tax. What's happening? Um, well, it is actually... I don't know if exciting is the right word for it, but it is interesting um, if for anybody who follows the economics of the county, which is probably most of the people who listen to this podcast. Sure. The July numbers, they're preliminary because there's still a lot of places left to report. But despite the pandemic um, and in accordance with what pretty much everyone has been telling us all summer, which is there are a ton of freaking people up here. Um, the preliminary numbers are within $58,000 of last year's returns for July room tax returns. And in talking to Kim Roberts, who administers, um, the, she's the administrator for the Door County Tourism Zone, with 123 properties yet to report, it's very likely that this July will have greater room tax returns than last July. Yeah, I was I was really interested in hearing these numbers because of the pandemic going on. And I was curious if we would see uh, a raise in sales tax, but uh, less room tax, indicating more day tripping going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it looks like maybe we'll probably just see both. So yeah. uh, <laughs> raise in sales tax and room tax. And not only were there a ton of people up here, but there were even more on top of what we normally have. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and again, room tax doesn't take into account camping. So right. All those campsites that have been full and the uh, state parks that have been full and the people who have been squatting on vacant pieces of the property (laughs) and camping. Yeah, I mean, you you had talked uh, to some people about kind of the real estate situation up here and how uh, land was was kind of a hot ticket item this year. People wanting to buy some land just to maybe put a a tent or a camper on right now just to have a place to get away from the cities, too. So I I could see that being something that adds to it as well. Uh, It just looks like. Uh, no matter which way you slice it, there were a lot of people up here. Yeah, I mean, it is it is really wild to me that even with the number of hotels who have um, been they've wait they put a gap day between reservations between stays. Even with those gap days, it's still you've still got this much revenue coming in. Part of that is also owed to the fact that Airbnbs and vacation rental properties have just been off the charts this summer. From everybody I've talked to who who is in that industry, and those will typically have a higher daily rate, whereas a hotel might have, you know, the the rate is 175 bucks for a one bedroom suite, you know, at, at X resort. Well, you know, the, if you rent a house, you're going to pay $600 for the night. And there might be three people or three couples in that $600 night or house. So you have like a higher daily rate for that one. So it skews it just slightly. But it also does indicate the the daily rate for July was up from $202 per night last year to $216 this year, which would lead me to believe that there's a greater percent. And even though it's not, I'm not talking like 75%, but there are a greater percentage of those room nights that are accounted for by Airbnbs and vacation rentals where people are paying that higher daily rate. So that is, you know, it's as a lot of people have told me throughout the summer when I ask them, hey, how's business been? They're like, it's been really good, busier than we should be or maybe even want to be. Right. So it's like a double edged sword. Like, it's good to see this, that the places are, are thriving. I talked to a bunch of hoteliers this week who said, yeah, I'm within like 90. I got 90 percent of last year's dollars. I'm really happy with that. Um, or I'm slightly up from last year in July. And that's making up for like the the, the lockdown in the spring. But yeah, I mean, everyone's doing it with short staffed and um and worried every day about like when are the cases going to come into my business right yeah that's the thing we talked early on about how businesses were going to make it through being closed early on and how businesses were going to survive if we have less people coming up all of those types of things and i don't want to downplay you know anybody's hardships because like you said the businesses that have been successful had to work really hard at it with less staff and that kind of stuff risking safety those types of things but i'm sure there are also businesses that close down early on that aren't going to reopen as well i'm sure that that's the case for some people and i don't want to downplay that right uh 
as as we talk about how you know businesses have been really, really thriving, um, it, it's just interesting to see that we were so focused on like how are we going to get our businesses through the summer, and then all of a sudden, despite everything that that we we expected to happen, we just had a huge boom of people uh, and a lot of people spending money and going to restaurants, despite you know having mostly outdoor dining and stuff like that. So it, it's interesting to see that, and and we will talk about COVID nineteen a little bit later. There's a couple other things that I want to talk about, but I don't want people to think that. We're we're just kind of flying past the the increase in cases because I think that that's probably yeah. at the forefront of everybody's mind. Uh, but we will talk about that a little bit later, just in case you're wondering if we were going to, you know, get into that, and we will. Um, anything else on on room tax or any anecdotal stuff? Well, just the to to be clear again, going back to like the the overall state of of the economy, we're we're still down about twenty percent compared to last year for the year. So July was up. June had come closer than than a lot of people thought. We still, I could, having watched this for the last, well, since the beginning of room tax, August and July make up such a huge chunk of it that like if August is also pretty close to last year's numbers, I think we might see that we might be looking at being able to be within like 10 to 15% of last year. 10 might be on the high end that we might only be 10% down from last year year over year by the time this is all said and done. Um, maybe 15% is more realistic. But I have talked to a bunch of hoteliers in September who also said like September is like July for us or September is like August for us and that the weeknights are filling up, which just doesn't typically happen to the degree that it is right now. Um, and the weekends are already booked. Um, there are some vacation rental places who are saying that their places are full through November, which is a first for them. So it's going to be really interesting where it finally comes in. And I think like everybody, they're just keeping their fingers crossed about the the case numbers that we're, we're seeing. And, and we'll get to that later. But right. Yeah, I am interested to see how the, the fall season shakes out for things, because we we generally do have pretty decent falls. Mm -hmm. uh, Last year, we were voted USA Today's like best place in the U.S. to see fall colors. So I feel like we do have a, a good stream of stuff. I wonder if that goes up or down compared to other years because uh, I feel like there's a bunch of things to keep into consideration. So if you've got uh, young families with children who are going to school remotely, maybe there's a draw there to come up for a long weekend or something like that. Hey, you can still do your class on Friday at the hotel and then we'll go that's, out and we'll... That's definitely happening. Yeah. I mean, even amongst friends of mine, I know, are doing are, are doing that. And I think you may see more if if more schools are, go through what uh, the Door County schools are doing, where class is going remote for this week and back in next week or all together remote. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that easily. I could also see people who stuck it out all summer long and have not left their homes or been able to stay at home and just want to get out for, you know, a little bit here in the fall, thinking that things are going to be slower. So there will be less people. And then we'll have another influx of people all thinking that same great idea at the same time. And uh, the colors are only now just really starting to show. So, right. I mean, we haven't even seen that fall color rush yet. It's uh, it's coming. <laughs> yeah, I would say that if you're if you're listening to this from outside of Door County and you're thinking like, oh, fall will be a great time to come up because it will be slower. I would hedge your bets on that not being the case, uh, yeah. because if you're thinking that there's a ton of other people who are also thinking that and you'll all show up together at the same time and be like, oh, wow, it's much busier than I thought it was going to be. Uh, one long term uh, effect of this, this this summer and those tourism numbers that we're seeing is something that on the other side of covid if there is one day another side of COVID. Um, the visitors this year, I think a lot of longtime regular visitors come who come up year after year are, did not come up this summer. Um, people who stayed home, people who just didn't want to be exposed and, and put themselves at risk, um, or maybe economically just didn't have the opportunity to do that this year with the resources constrained. But if we stayed that busy, that means a lot of other people who maybe wouldn't have come here filled those gaps. So if you said 10 or 20 or maybe even more greater percentage of our visitors this year were people who don't normally come up here or maybe hadn't been here in a long time. And that's what anecdotally I've heard from a lot of business owners saying, these are not our regular visitors. These are different people for the most part. Um, I think, you know, hopefully they had a good experience and liked it and were reintroduced to a, a door county maybe they weren't familiar with or had never been to. And you know, down the road, hopefully that's replenishing um, the the tourism market for the county for 5, 10, 15 years from now, creating new tourists. I know nobody wants it to be busier, right? But as I talked to some, uh, many hoteliers, um, 
you know, they, they talk about, and, and even restaurant owners, they talk about a certain degree of their clientele, literally like just aging out of the marketplace and being a little f- afraid of like, how do we replenish that with young people? Like this summer, people told me that the crowd was younger, um, either young families or young single or young couples more than ever before. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because I was going to ask, do you think that the the crowd skewed younger this year? It it seemed to me that they did just from driving around and seeing people out and about. But yeah, it it will be interesting to see what effects this summer has going forward, whether it, you know, all of a sudden next year we have our biggest year in 10 years because we've got the same group of people who showed up this year and the people who skipped this year all coming back together at the same time. Uh, Maybe that's a possibility or or maybe like, like you said, we just see a new client starting to come in and and that's not necessarily a bad thing right oh not at all that just that's generationally people just kind of shift in and out yeah um so yeah it will be interesting to see how this summer affects you know the next five years yeah uh the august numbers and the adjusted july numbers won't be out for another month or so so but uh that's that's going to be something that i'll be keeping a close eye on because i'm really curious to see my my hunch is august is similar to what we saw in July, where it's going to end up being close or better than last year, just from anecdotally walking around, but we'll see. Cool. So Miles, uh, I know that you've been busy with Pulse stuff and you just put a magazine out and you're working on all this election stuff, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, but you're also got some cool stuff going on over at Right On Door County, right? You're on the board there and you guys are, are going to be opening the doors to your new writing center coming up here October 9th. Is that correct? Yeah, um, we're really excited. It's been a project a couple of years in the making. And, you know, if you go back to the founding of our organization with Ann Hoberlin Emerson and um, Michael Brecky, Vinny Shomo, Bill Gunzel, um, they kind of had this vision at the start back in 2012 and maybe even earlier when Ann was first kind of tossing this idea onto the table for folks that are involved. And um, our new writing center on Judville Road, it's uh, a beautiful new building. Um, it, they're putting the finishing touches on it right now. And if you drive by it, it's got kind of a Frank Lloyd Wright esque sort of look to it. Um, incredibly energy efficient. And what it is, is it's going to be the, you know, a home for writing in Door County. We've been an organization that has partnered with tons of other properties and venues and other nonprofits and other organizations for the last seven years. And now we have a legitimate home of our own where we can offer classes and and a place for book clubs to meet and a a place for people to come and just write or read or check out our library. Um, We're just we're just really excited to to open this up and, and really have a place to invite people and say, hey, this is what Write On is. Be a part of it. Right. Yeah, we did an episode of the podcast with Lauren Bremer, I think last year, where we talked a little bit more about Write On stories. So if you want to hear more about that, I would check that episode out. Uh, but I'm excited to see the new writing center. I've, I've kind of seen it as it's been been going up, but I'm excited to see it once it's finished. Um, it And it's also interesting just having something new and cool and big in that part of the county, too. You guys are right on Judville Road, right? Yeah. So just all of a sudden, there's this new, really nice facility that people you know can go to, and there's this modern flair to it, but it also should feel comfortable. Like you said, you're inviting people there to write. Uh, So I'm sure that there were a lot of things that went into the architectural design of it to kind of create an inviting atmosphere. And uh, it should be a really cool spot to check out uh, a couple of weeks from now. Yeah. And unfortunately, of course, we opened this new center in the middle of a pandemic, so we can't do a large public gathering, but there is going to be a virtual grand opening on October 9th in the evening. Um, you can go to writeondoorcounty.org and find more details on that. We're still doing a lot of virtual programming. Um, all of that, you can register for classes. We had a, a class with Rebecca Mackay, an acclaimed author, uh, just a few weeks ago on the craft of writing. Um, and after or the week of October 5th through the 9th, we'll be doing some um, individual and small group tours, inviting some of our supporters over the years. And then from October 10th to the 24th, we will be offering the opportunity for people to come in person and see the facility in small groups and take tours of the grounds. There's um, 30 plus acres of trails um, that are just a beautiful little property there in Judville that will uh, the building just kind of blends right into without kind of overpowering that area. And then across the street, we also are the home of Norblize Writing Coop. So the the coop where he wrote about so many of Door County's 
great characters of the past. Um, when Norbly Nor left us about six, seven years ago, they moved that coop down to the property, and um, and I think you've been in there too. It I can have. be a bit of a hot box on a warm day, but um, it's pretty cool to have like a little bit of a, a I should say a little bit a great piece of Door County history in Norbly's coop, and then across the street we now have this uh, beautiful new writing center. Um, kind of two two ends of the the writing world of, of Door County there. Right. Yeah, I have been in, in the coop. And it, it's interesting because it, it's very small and very cozy. And you can just imagine, like, spending an afternoon there writing. Uh, but then I've seen photos of when he was using it. And it was just floor to ceiling full of books. And I was like, <laughs> even it was even smaller. And you probably had to climb over stuff to get to the desk. And I was like, that that seems to be the, the dream as a writer, to just have that, <laughs> like, that tiny little world you can put yourself in and it's just all writing and just immerse yourself uh but it's nice to see that it was cleaned up a little bit and you can a actually little bit cleaner around. than norb's version of it there there are still some of norb's pictures on the wall his drawings on the wall um some of his notes and and like phone numbers and addresses he had written down of people he was talking to and, and writing with um when i interviewed him in that coop in 2012 um it was it was one of those things where i walked in there and sat down with him for about three hours and there was the narrowest of paths to get through. And, he, you know, he's got to take all the crap that he had on the only other chair that was in there. And I had to make sure I didn't knock over a stack and just throw off whatever kind of crazy organizational structure he had with everything. Yeah, because if you knocked over one stack of books, that would basically it's all be it. You, would all, you both would have died in there that day. <laughs> yeah, could have suffocated. Right. Find out how a dollar bill ends up on the ceiling of a bar. Discover the best routes for viewing fall color or an overlooked hike. And find out what makes one woman dedicate her life to preserving Door County's historical icons. Get all of this and more in the autumn issue of Door County Living Magazine, featuring in-depth stories, tips, and profiles from the team that knows the peninsula better than anyone else. You can pick up your free copy on newsstands everywhere in Door County. So we are we're closing in on November third, but there's really nothing going on between now and then, is there? No, uh, it's been a pretty low key election season. It looks like everybody's being pretty reasonable and measured in their their conversations and sure. and their public statements. So I don't think we'll even be covering it. Well, the the you guys are doing a really good job, kind of giving a great overview. Tell me about what you specifically have been working on in terms of election coverage, because there's there's a lot to cover and everybody's kind of broken it down into chunks. But but tell me what you've been focusing on. Yeah, well, um, a couple of weeks ago, Deb and Solomon had done a great look at um, the debate over fair maps and gerrymandering. Um, meanwhile, I've been trying to catch up with candidates. So this week, we caught up with Kim Jensen and Joel Kitchens, who are squaring off for the assembly district seat. That uh, the first assembly district includes all of Kiwani, all of Door County, part of Brown County, part of Manitowoc County. Um, Joel Kitchens has held that seat for three terms. He's seeking a fourth term. And Kim Jensen, the um, restaurateur who owns uh, probably most notably Village Cafe and Mojo Rosa's, but also Pink Bakery and Villaggio's, um, is running as his challenger from the Democratic side. Yeah, I, I remember when Kim announced her bid. I uh, read the article that was in the Pulse. There was an interview done with her. Uh, but I, I haven't kept up with either of them so much since then. So I, I'm excited to, to to read these articles and to learn a little bit more about what's going on. Um, anything that you want to tell people just about what you what you wrote? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was basically so it's an interesting campaign season because obviously there's no events like there's no big public events and, and shaking hands and walking through parades, which is normally what you would see in an election year. Um, so uh, there's been an attempt by the League of Women Voters did a forum on Saturday, which was a Zoom forum that was then released later on YouTube. So it wasn't wasn't even a live kind of forum. Um, so you could get a, a little flavor of the candidates if you watch that. Uh, but, you know, those sorts of forums are generally, you know, two minute answers very quick. As both candidates told me when I interviewed them separately, um, you know, it's tough to get into the nuance of some of these issues with the two minute answer, um, which is the problem in most politics in general. And we may bring them onto the podcast to, to go a little more in depth on a couple of issues at some point in the next couple of weeks. But it's also a strange campaign season to cover because normally we would map out our coverage based on election day and you lead up with, all right, how do we get this all in by November 3rd? And instead this year, so many people have voted already and sent in their ballots that, um, you know, the, 
on the plus side for me as a reporter, I look at that and say, okay, these those are people who were probably not looking for new coverage to decide how they were going to vote. If you were confident enough to make your decision in early September, you you didn't you probably weren't looking for more info. Right. Um, but now it's it's about how do we bump up that coverage to give people enough information before they mail in at least some of these people mail in their ballots or go and vote in person. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that you talked about how campaigning is so weird. I don't even know if a campaign is legitimate unless you can kiss a baby. And I don't think that that's happening this <laughs> yeah, year. Right? So, uh, I, or maybe ever again. <laughs> yeah. That's probably, hopefully never again. It's just a weird thing in general. I don't want anybody kissing my baby, but me. Yeah. Um, but the one thing with kitchens and Jensen Jensen in this week's issue is hopefully people can get a glimpse in general of who they are. You know, you can't really get an in-depth profile in one particular article and really get the the full picture of how they might vote but between um, the forum from the league of women voters if you go to their website you can still watch that um, and access it anytime um, we talked about some of the key issues um, and some of the kind of bigger picture issues things like their stance on legalizing marijuana joel kitchens is against it Kim Jensen are wholeheartedly for it. Um, Kim Jensen has tried to stake out a position on water quality, which is kind of interesting because she has attacked Joel for his uh, lack of action on water quality. Joel Kitchens, on the other hand, he would stakes his claim on water quality uh, as like one of the things he's proudest of and done the most work on. Um, having covered farms and water quality for the last few years, I know he's, he has put a ton of time into that and, and has passed some legislation um, on that front. So that's just kind of an interesting dynamic. Um, and there's a little more detail on that in the article. Um, both of them support fair maps legislation, although Joel has said that he doesn't really think it makes that much of a difference, but he's like, if it restores voters confidence, so be it. Kim Jensen is more of the lines like, Hey, actually fair maps would make a big difference on who gets elected and how we run our politics. Um, a lot of other different, uh, aspects laid out in the article, but Kim Jensen did say her impetus for running and putting her hat in the ring was that basically the inaction of the legislature during COVID-19 and saying that, you know, I was just as a as somebody who has four businesses or I think five businesses now because she opened a new one, um, just not getting guidance from the state and being left hanging as a business owner. She got really frustrated with that and was like, all right, I'm 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 thrown in. <laughs> yeah, um, I can think of worse reasons to get involved. Right. Joel, on the other hand, has said that he feels like the legislature has done all it should do um, for the most part in throughout the pandemic. And that, um, you know, if Kim had criticized the legislature for overturning the safer at home order, but not having a plan to replace it, Joel said that they're, they were working on a plan, but the governor would not work with them. And so nothing happened. Um, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see. This is a district that... Uh, Joel won pretty overwhelmingly in 2018. I think he had close to 68% of the vote. Um, and it has been represented by a Republican and the state assembly um, for 20 plus years consecutively. So right. it would be a it would be an upset if if Jensen were to defeat uh, Joel Kitchens in this race. Yeah. Yeah, that will be interesting to look into. Uh, we've been We've been trying to hold off on the, the COVID stuff just to get some other stuff out of the way, but pretty much everything we talked about had something to do with it, uh, <laughs> as is, you know, the life. Now. Life, exactly. So uh, why, why don't we jump back in? So we, I think the last two podcast episodes that I recorded with you, Miles, we were watching the numbers go up and kind of talking about what that might mean. Last week, you talked uh, to Jim Heiss. Uh, Dr. Jim Heiss at Door County Medical Center to talk about some of the stuff that uh, they've been seeing going on over there. Um, and every week we've been reporting that we are now at like the highest active case number that we've had. Uh, and that is, you know, that doesn't change this week. So right now, from what I'm seeing, uh, we are at 116 active cases. Right. So that is uh, a lot higher than I think we last reported, which was kind of maybe in the 60s. Uh, and then before that, I remember we had talked about, you know, uh, what's going to happen when we get to that 30 active case zone with the schools. Uh, now we are far, far and away beyond that. I, I think we've had over 100 positive cases since September 1st. Uh, so this is this is kind of what we've been talking about for the summer, seeing it you know, what happens when it gets to that point? Well, now we're at that point. So what's happening? Well, you, you're seeing a lot of cases tied to kids going back to school. Um, that's not all of it, but that is a, a, 
a factor. Um, you and I both sent our kids to Northern Door Children's Center. They had a positive case at the Children's Center last week, which means certain, you know, certain grade levels in the Children's Center, uh, those parents had to keep their kids home for a week as part of the quarantine measures. Um, Sevastopol and Sturgeon Bay schools have had cases in which they've had to send classrooms home. I think Sturgeon Bay has had four different grade levels that they've had to keep home for stretches and go back to remote learning for a short time. Um, and Sevastopol has had others. So you're having, I would not want to be an administrator or a school board member right now dealing with these ups and downs and changes. Um, I, I don't know how you, how you balance all those different schedules and all right, this grades in this week, this grades out this week. Um, how do we hold them to a, a standard even remotely close to normal? Um, and then parents got to be incredibly frustrated by that, that we're open, we're closed. Um, but then there are also a lot of rest or a lot of cases where you'll see restaurants close. You'll see businesses close. That doesn't mean that like the case is tied to the restaurant, right? So that doesn't mean that the person caught it by working at that restaurant or caught it by working at that place. Pheasant Park Resort last week closed for a week as they had a couple of cases. And uh, at the time, a couple that they thought were probable cases, but they none of that was traced to their work at the hotel. It was just their employee happened to catch it. And so when you lose 25% of your employer, employees, <laughs> you kind of have to shut your doors. Plus you, you have to get everyone else, make sure everyone else is safe. So, right. So you've seen, a, I think we're up to about a dozen to 15 restaurants that have closed as a result of having employees test positive at this point. Yeah, it, it's it's so weird thinking back to these conversations that we've been having over the last six months and talking about like, well, what's going to happen if this, what's going to happen if, if this, and now we're in the if this portion of this and we're seeing all of these happen. Um I I guess my anxiety comes from uh, when this all started happening in March. We we jumped on board right away, took things very seriously, started doing you know upwards of five podcast episodes a week just to make sure that people had all of the information that they could. Um, staying at home, not going out. I remember you know I for the first couple of weeks I was wearing gloves out to the grocery store, um, just very very little going outside at all uh, for maybe the first seven weeks or so. And then things started to loosen up. You know, we started to think maybe surfaces aren't necessarily as high of a of a, a factor when it comes to transmitting COVID nineteen. So gloves went off. You know, started you know kept washing hands and that kind of stuff. But started to relax a little bit more. I've definitely haven't eaten out or eaten inside anywhere. But you know, I've gotten you know more takeout food, that kind of stuff. Uh, feeling more comfortable going out uh, and, and and being around, going out in nature, that kind of thing. Uh, my anxiety comes from this, you know, this fear that we have relaxed to a certain degree uh, right at the time when this is, you know, picking up. And I'm afraid that people are who weren't paying attention to the numbers as closely don't necessarily know what's happening. I know that business owners do. And I know that, you know, families with children in schools do for sure. Uh, but my fear is that we are uh, it's an inverse curve for now we're relaxing as cases are going up when we were so tight on things in the very beginning when we had, you know, double digit cases for four months, basically. Uh, so I, I guess that's my anxiety. What are what are you seeing in, in your talks with people? What do you think about that? Well, I think there's anxiety, but then there's also to some degree, like people are seeing people get this and have very mild cases. And so they're going, hmm, okay. Maybe it's not so bad. And there's validity to that. Um, you have the case because it, it's like we, we pay attention to the case numbers, right? And that's the, the easy one. It's the one that scares us. But the hospitalizations are not going up in Door County. Now, in the state, the last couple of days, they have. And they've always said that hospitalization hospitalizations will rise as cases rise, but they'll lag. And that's what you're seeing now is Wisconsin has now got more people hospitalized at this moment for COVID-19 than we have at any point during the pandemic. That's probably a more important one than case numbers. Um, right now we're at over 509. That's a that's a significant jump over the previous high, which is back in April. Um, and that's up 35 from 39 from yesterday. Um, in Door County, however, there's still I don't I don't believe anybody, at least in my last conversation with the hospital that anybody was hospitalized at that given moment last week. Um, throughout the, in, this entire pandemic, 
We've only had somewhere in the 10 to 15 range of number of people hospitalized in Door County. Now, that doesn't necessarily account for people who maybe were immediately hospitalized in Green Bay. The capacity um, for hospitalizations is still there in, in the county um, and statewide and in Northeast Wisconsin, but that can change pretty quickly. Um, you could have, you know, if you get 25 more hospitalizations in Northeastern Wisconsin, in, in a day or two, you might start to look at, like, the hospital starting to go like, all right, we're getting, we're getting close. Um, cause it doesn't take a ton to really throw things off. So there's good thing is that with all these rising cases, it, it isn't like early on where you had a, such a high percentage of those people being hospitalized. There was one point where you would have 20% of the cases announced in a day, you'd have 20% of them hospitalized and we're nowhere near that now. So we've learned a lot more. Of, and part of that is because we've learned a lot more about how to treat it and who needs to be hospitalized and who needs, say, ventilators, which is a last, last resort now. Um, but it's also because we're testing so many more people that that percentage is so much farther down. At the beginning, we were only basically testing people. If you, if you were hospitalized, then they tested you for COVID. Now it's like, right. we're going to test you, and then we're going to see if you need to be hospitalized, which flips the script a little bit. Yeah, you said that, that we're seeing people getting it and it's not as severe. Uh, I don't want me, people to misconstrue that as saying that, you know, it's not it, or anything has been overblown, right? I, I don't want people to think that we're saying that like COVID nineteen isn't nearly as bad as we thought it was. Uh, last week you mentioned how Dr. Jim Heiss said that uh, maybe because everybody's been wearing masks, uh, people are getting less of a dosage of the virus, mm -hmm. uh, and therefore the severity has been less. I hope that that's the case. I, I hope right. that that is uh, the way that it's actually working. But I, I, I don't want to say that you know when people get it, it's not as bad as we thought it was, uh, because you know for two hundred thousand people in the U.S., it's fatal, and for many more, it's been life changing. So. Uh, I, I just wanted to, to make sure that we stress that again. I hope that what we're seeing in the numbers versus hospitalizations does indicate that people are getting less sick now. Uh, that that does help me feel better moving forward uh, because then you start to think like, well, I was sick for like five days early on, but it didn't seem like COVID, but maybe it was. And it, I just got a low dosage. You know what I mean? Maybe yeah. it's something like that uh, makes you feel a little bit better. But at the same time, I... <laughs> I don't know how helpful it is to to have that kind of like, oh, well, you know what? Maybe things are, are better and, and everything's kind of good because we're seeing right now cases going up. So I, I, I don't know necessarily if it's time to to jump in and shut everything back down. Um, I feel like the time for that is unfortunately passed. Um, but I, I do feel like continuing to hold strong in safety precautions is is the key for the rest of this. Um, and, and there's a greater debate to be had about schools. I mean, no matter how safe you're, you are on paper, uh, the, the risk level is just higher when you're sending kids back to school. So I, I think that seeing a percentage jump up from sending kids back to school is, is kind of a no-brainer. You should have been able to anticipate that. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean... I think my anxiety level, if we were seeing these numbers back in May and June, it would really have me on edge. Um, it does have me somewhat on edge, but not in the same fear level as I might have had back then. And mainly because I, you know, in so many conversations with doctors and hospital officials here in Door County and then elsewhere in the country that have dealt with this and, and including in other countries that have dealt with it, um, we've come so far in our ability to handle cases early on. You have to put it in the context of that time. And I almost think it'd be worth almost, it'd be great if we could actually erase everything that's in our head about this and then just get reeducated based on the ground rules now, you know, because those early days when it was like, don't touch the door handle. And if somebody comes to your house and goes inside and when they leave, you wipe everything down because we all, you know, there was that big fear about services, which even in the beginning was probably overblown because it was a lot of that fear was based on, you know, a report saying, well, this virus can live for 72 hours on surfaces, but it didn't say like, can it be infectious for 72 hours on surfaces? Um, but if you took that out of the equation, like think of how much less scary the virus is if you're not worried about every surface you touch, you know? Um, and that largely seems to be the case now. Um, it's most certainly aerosols seem to be like the, and, and the problem is the CDC only is admitting this now. Um, even though scientists were saying this back in April and May, that aerosols were a, a probably the driving factor in, in the spread of this virus. It's only now 
being built into the CDC guidelines. Even when uh, Door County Public Health put out their guidelines for businesses even a month ago, they didn't include anything about ventilation in those guidelines. <laughs> so you, you think of like how slowly we're, we're getting to that point. But on the flip side, like it basically took 10 years during the AIDS crisis before people started to go, hmm, maybe this isn't just a gay disease. <laughs> like it basically took Magic Johnson. Right. Um, so you, you, we do have to remind ourselves that it takes a while to understand these uh, a new disease that we've never seen before. Um, but so there, there's the, the surfaces question. There's the hospitals question where one reason a lot of people died is because they didn't know what they were facing. Doctors and medical professionals didn't know that what they were trying to fight and they didn't have the right tools to fight it. They didn't have the personal protective equipment to fight it. And you, we were losing healthcare workers as a result of it. And you were infecting other people in the hospital because this disease was spreading. Now, if you even talking to the folks at Door County Medical Center, they have a COVID wing. Like they feel like they can continue to operate the hospital and address all the other things that people normally have, heart attacks, strokes, um, broken bones, those sorts of things, the flu. They can safely treat those people and also treat the COVID people by just not having them interact and, and having specific areas that they would take those people. That reduces the deaths, that reduces the spread. So that reduces the contagious level of this disease. It would be really interesting to look at it like, let's look at the data starting August 1st, like at a level four months into it, where now what are the rates just for those four months versus including the beginning when we knew nothing about it? Right. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting just talking about like where we are now um, based on, on where we were before, because part of me still feels like, you know, uh, you talk about how afraid we were in the beginning or how terrifying this was. But I feel like if if everybody was terrified of it right away, we would be in a different spot right I, now. I 100% agree. Like that's the unfortunate part of it is like, yeah, you might think that things are, are better now and things have, have we've, we've come a long way and what we've learned and all of that is true. Uh, but if, if everybody across the board had treated this, you know, like it was very scary right away, we wouldn't be where we're at now. We would be in a completely different spot. So... It's, well, I mean, you look at people say like, well, we can't be locked down again. That was punitive. That was that was too harsh, way too far. And in my conversations with um, Joel Kitchens, he had, had hinted at that um, just this week. But we we weren't locked down. <laughs> I mean, only most business owners will tell you like, yeah, uh, if, if you weren't a restaurant, you were basically an essential business in, in most eyes of the rules. We, we don't have any rules right now. Basically, we have right. We have a mask mandate that isn't being enforced by anybody. So there is no law that tells any restaurant that they have to have the plexiglass up, that they have to do any of this. It's all by choice. And I applaud the business owner for doing that. But we are not in the midst of a lockdown and we never really have been. Right. And, and you know people who were and you've heard stories of people who were abroad. Every single person that comes here from Chicago tells us that this is like the Wild West compared to Chicago. And Chicago compared to folks abroad, and we've had them on the podcast, like the level of, of lockdown in other countries has been so much greater. And that's not to say that, that was the right way to handle it. You can look at some of these countries and say like, well, maybe we could have done something different. It's like a lot of people point to Sweden, but you also have to factor in that like Sweden didn't have like an enforced lockdown, but their people like obeyed the guidance of public health and trusted their public health anyway. So they just kind of, without being forced to lock down, they kind of just did a lot of those steps anyway. So it's not an apples to apples comparison right. um, and nothing is until you do really do a lot of research on each of these scenarios. True. It's funny that you said that, you know, who knows if that's the right way to handle it, but at least it was a way to handle it compared to what we got, which was not handling anything. Yeah. So which was everyone make your own choice, which right. is, I mean, we could do that with seatbelts, too. <laughs> we yeah. could ask people not to wear seatbelts. I wonder where that would get us. We could tell people, make your own choice about driving drunk or not. I don't think that would get us to a good spot. Um, so it's it's kind of an interesting approach to like the toughest thing we face. And and most of the people who advocated for social distancing, a lockdown, um, really limiting your bubble, they all said like it will take everyone to do that to clamp this down. And then we, we'd have to be able to to test and trace at the other end of it. And we never put that, we never used that time as effectively. I'd say like the hospitals did. And I think our businesses, for the most part, used that time well. Because when we reopened, they had procedures in place. Our government did not. Um, we did not have, we didn't like ramp up rapidly our testing capacity. We did not ramp up our, our tracing capacity to the degree that was probably needed. So then it just ballooned again. And 
it really tracing almost becomes impossible. And in, in Door County, they're struggling. If you talk to Sue Powers, they're really strug- struggling to keep up with contact tracing now and even getting cooperation of people with tracing, which then it starts to go like, well, now as the case is ballooned, it just becomes a fruitless endeavor. I, w- I shouldn't say right. fruitless, but a more difficult endeavor. Yeah, and I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm saying that I think people should have stayed home. People should have stayed home from work. I'm saying... People should have been able to because for for so many people in the United States, that wasn't an option at all. Right. right? And and when when you get to that point, you're like, well, people can't just stay home from work. People need to pay their rent or their bills or that kind of stuff. Or people can't just keep their kids home with them because they need to go to work. That doesn't mean that staying home is a moot point. That means that there is a failure in the system somewhere along the line. And that's the unfortunate part of it. If if the, the governmental hierarchy had made it so that people could stay home and live and be uh, able to pay their rent and that kind of stuff for long enough to be able to clamp this down, like you said, uh, then then that would have been one thing. But that just wasn't the case. So I'm not blaming people for not staying home or for going to work. Uh, I, I'm blaming the system uh, at, at, at that point. And, and that's why I said, like, seeing where we are now and, and sending kids back to school and, and all of this stuff right now is not a failure of the individual. It's a failure of the, the greater system. And that's something that we've been talking about this entire time, just in terms of not having any sort of procedures in place. That's part of it, right? And, and we've just had to kind of figure things out all on our own this entire way through. And I think that we've done a really commendable job up to this point point. Uh, but now we're at this point and I, uh, I, I don't know what, what, what comes next. So I'm, I'm glad that you have your ears out to people and you're talking to businesses and you're talking to the, the, the hospital and, and giving that back to people like me who are worried about it. Um, and so thank you for, for doing that part of it. But, uh, I, I'm just looking forward to what we're, we're getting at next or, or, or how we're going to overcome this portion of it. Yeah. I mean, it, we, I did talk, I spent a good chunk of this last week talking to business owners who have had some of these positive cases. There's still some confusion um, about like, all right, who gets tested? And why not this guy, but this guy is? And what's considered a close contact? And um, in, in defense of the like, public health department, they've, they've tried to get that information out there. But unfortunately, they're also trying to get that information out in the middle of people working probably longer hours than they've ever worked before <laughs> and being more stressed than ever. So they're not even getting that chance to sit like in my restaurant days. It's not like I as an owner, it's not like I ever paid like I barely checked my email <laughs> in the course of the summer. So let alone my bartenders and waitstaff and then getting that information to disseminate to them, um, you know, sending an email or having a Zoom session is great. But like that doesn't that doesn't mean you hit everybody. So they still have questions and they they still wonder what those procedures are. We try to answer those questions in the Pulse and on this podcast. But again, not everybody can listen to that or read our paper even, um, unfortunately. Um, speaking of mandates, let's mandate that people read the Pulse. No, um, I don't know about that. I mean, you're already <laughs> sending it to everybody's mailbox. Yeah, we what are trying to do, do Miles? <laughs> um, but, you know, this week, testing fell behind. Even at this, what compared to most regions would be a very minor bump in cases, this bump meant suddenly tests are taking seven to 10 days to come, come back for some people again. And uh, I talked to a restaurant owner who closed this week or, or last week after having uh, an employee test positive. And so they closed, they wanted to get some tests and okay, these close contacts can get tested, but not until Monday. And so they're closed for the weekend. They go in Monday and it's like, your re- results won't be back for a week. So here they are with like key employees who are now looking at a 10 day window between when they're told they can get, get a test, which was on Friday, they're told they can go in and get one Monday, and then they're told the results are a week later. And what if they're another day or two beyond that? Like, how do you plan when key employees might be sick and you can't confirm that they're not for that long? Um, and now, granted, technically, that employee should quarantine for 14 days between point of contact of that close contact and and when symptoms would um, subside but or present themselves, and then you could get cleared at the end of that 14 days. But as a restaurant owner, how do you, you can't operate with like, I mean, Losing one employee just throws the whole schedule out of whack. I mean, these things are <laughs> held together by popsicle sticks. And um, I do think when when public health would say, well, we're not forcing them to close. They don't have to close. That that employee just has to quarantine. It's like, well, okay, take three of my employees. <laughs> like, I'm right. done. Like, I can't do it. Yeah. Um, so after already not having all the J1s. So it, it is really difficult for business owners to make these decisions and not have really clear guidance from up above. 
Right. Well, and, and even on like a personal level too, I, I don't understand exactly how it works, but from, from what I've been told, say, uh, say I were to test positive, right? I get sick a couple of days later, I go in, take a test. They're going to have me quarantine until my test results come in, right? They're probably also going to have my wife quarantine because we are in close contact. So let's say it takes seven days for my test results to come back uh, and say they're positive, right? So that means that I'm going to have to continue to a 14 day quarantine, right? Uh, Not necessarily. That, your, no? your 14 day would be, hmm, that's actually a good question. Well, the, the second part of it is, um, I, I don't think you'd have to do 14 days after your positive test. Uh, maybe you do, uh, because there's already a seven day gap Well, there. because like if, if, if in 14 days you were still feeling sick, like the 14 days wouldn't matter, right? right. You, uh, but then the other part of it is, so now we're seven days after my test, I get my results in, I have to continue my quarantine. Uh, my wife also has to continue her quarantine now, uh, but they're not recommending that she get tested until after we've both completed ours, right? So now we're looking at how many days before we know if my wife has it, right? And so that takes her out of a business. We've talked about multiple businesses closing down at the same time because they share employees, but employees also share residences with each other. So now you've got this like, okay, well, you don't have to close down, but this employee has to quarantine. But what about everybody that they live with, right? Well, and so, a lot of these employees, like there's been examples of people who work at three or four different places. All four of those places may be tied to one single person. Right. And then you think of like, man, being that person and you're like, oh, man, I'm the reason all these places had to shut down. It's a, it's a terrible thing to have to endure. But th th that that is exactly the question that so many of these businesses are trying to figure out. And then they're being told, OK, well, you weren't a close contact because they, they, they do an interview. They ask, like, who have you come in contact with? What was the, the type of contact? Who were you talking to? But anybody who works in a restaurant would say. My whole kitchen staff has been in close contact all day. And, and right. you, you may not have had like a face-to-face, -face, two foot away, I'm having a conversation with you, but like kitchens are small places. <laughs> it's pretty hard not to consider that. If, if I were sitting here working on the line next to somebody else or in a kitchen where our dishwasher had tested positive, I would consider myself a close contact. But I think what they're being told a lot of times is, no, you would not be a close contact. But like you're all breathing that same air in a right. kitchen in this hot box in most cases. So I don't know how an entire kitchen staff wouldn't be considered a close contact. And that's a I know that I've been told that they wouldn't be. But I, as somebody who spent so much time in kitchens, like I, I and talking to so many restaurateurs, it's like that's the reality of this business. Like you, you are on top of each other and no shifts. Right. Now, I, I guess the last thing that I'll say about this is even with all this going on, uh, I, it's hard to remember that there were times where we did, you know, eat inside at restaurants and gathered in groups or went to parties or raves or stuff like you that. So, you, you're talking like that's a passing. A lot of people are. Sure. I, I'm, I guess I'm hoping that nobody is, uh, but I, I was going to make a joke. Miles, do you remember parties and raves? It would have been, <laughs> you know, 30 years for you ago. Um, <laughs> but Jerk. I, uh, um, like, I remember we used to do those things and for the most part we didn't get sick. Right. Uh, and my, my gut feeling is that, you know, a virus like this is more transmittable than other types of illnesses are. Uh, but it's it's just so weird how like I think that if I pass somebody on the street and neither of us are wearing masks, like there's that little thing in the back of my head that's like, that was dangerous, even though it probably isn't at all, right? Because the odds of, a, of one of us being sick and transmitting a particle into the other person is pretty small. You, you don't catch the flu that way generally. So, well, and you think about this, like people have been dining I mean, and people have been in restaurants and some of these restaurants have been pretty full. And some of these bars have been pretty full inside, you know, a lot of our, our supper clubs, still a lot of people dining inside. So I, I had somebody ask me the other day, like, how can this really be this contagious? We had a case in our place and nobody else got it. And we serve X number of people. It's a good question. I mean, it does. I mean, I don't, I almost hate, hesitate to even say this out loud because I don't want to give anybody the wrong impression, but it does really make you go like, all right, how, how easily is it spread if none of these restaurants have, from what Sue Powers tells me, has been the epicenter? of a bigger outbreak. None of them. <laughs> so um, usually the cases are tied to people and they're spread within their, that person's home, not necessarily like from a customer to a, an employee. Now, most of these restaurants, the employees are wearing masks. When they're having face-to-face -face encounters, they're behind a plexiglass stanchion. Like maybe those are making a huge difference in that. And maybe that is why. But it, I see why some of these 
business owners are asking those types of questions. Because if you had an outbreak, I think on, for, on the flip side, it would probably only take one for every restaurant to be like, no, 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 we're hardcore. <laughs> so it's a, I, I feel like in so many ways, we don't have any more clarity now than we did when this started, other than it's probably more aerosol than surfaces. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, all of this to say, we're, we're just kind of basically throwing things into the air as we're talking about this. But I, I would like to stress that all of this is to say that uh, we should still be listening to scientists and healthcare providers. And that, that is no, no question about it. Right. So so don't take our, our just our, our questioning of these types of things as a, as a reason to not listen to the science as it stands right now, because I think you and I both are firm believers in the science. Yeah. So. Uh, if you got a mask, wear it and stay away from people, wash your hands, all that well, kind and of good the, stuff. And I think I'm glad you mentioned that too, because like raising questions and debating possibilities doesn't mean necessarily like we, we're so entrenched in our camps that it's like, if anyone questions anything about what we're doing, they're like, they're shunned into one group. And if you're, you know, if, if you're locked down, like it's, it's gotta be all the way locked down. And if you aren't like all the way locked down, you're a terrible person. And it, that's not reality. Like everyone yeah. needs to have more empathy for each other. And understanding of people's situations. I understand that like I have a job where I don't have to sit there in front of hundreds of people every day if I choose not to. I have that luxury. And every single day while I talk about this in one from one frame of mind, there are people at the Piggly Wiggly who have worked every single day of this pandemic with hundreds if not thousands of people coming in, in front of them every single day. Um, and I, they, they don't have the luxury of the job I do where I can do this podcast from my garage like we did for a couple of months or I can report on the phone and keep my job and still work and, and so many of us. So um, there's, there's a whole spectrum of responses to this virus and a lot of them are very valid. Some of them just aren't. Right. <laughs> I guess not a hoax. I've talked to too many people who have um, had loved ones die and who have been treating this and, and working in hospitals with this. Like, if you want to call it a hoax, I don't have time for you. Right. But, you know, questioning our response and, and debating how we should be acting and how we should be operating is valid because even even the epidemiologists and, and folks who were staunch like hey we need to lock it down they still would tell you like this is what i think we should do and i'm probably I, I could be wrong and i'm going to be wrong about some things like we're all going to be wrong about some things yeah. it's okay but you might as well play it safe in the meantime right yes uh, just because you're questioning something doesn't mean you need to go from zero to 100 on it like i said you know we used to do all this stuff and we didn't get the flu before that didn't mean that we were both going to take our masks off and hug you know what i mean so, you're not a snowflake because you want to be safe right and that and because you care for people around you right um, and, and there's nothing wrong with being afraid right now either right being afraid doesn't mean that you're being tortured by the government it just means that you're you're afraid and i i heard that thrown around so often early on of like people need to stop living in fear and what i noticed is that like the people who are wearing masks outside or in their cars the people that are being made fun of by the people who are saying they're living in fear they're generally the elderly population and isn't that sad that those people are so afraid of this like why would you make fun of them for that they have all of the reason in the world to be terrified of what's going on right now yeah. because they are the most at risk so I, I i totally get where you're coming from in in that respect too it's like just let people be safe and err on the side of caution. And the the more people who all do this together, the quicker we'll be on the other side of it. And that's unfortunately what we've been saying since the beginning of this in March. Uh, but uh, now we're now we're in a different spot. And I think the same rules still apply. So yeah, spend more time figuring out how to help each other and less how to say the other person is wrong. Right. Well, uh, we are almost at an hour now. And so I'm going to wrap us up before uh, we take up any more time from anybody else. Uh, Miles, thank you so much for chatting with me. And I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you, Andrew. This is fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.